0: You are listening to shining star community church english ministry sunday message please visit us at www.shiningstar.life you know when i was little we played kickball during recess do you guys remember what that was do you remember recess it was everyone's favorite class right now, whether you like to rough it out on the blacktop or just chill out on the swings, recess was a, just a great time. It was so great. In fact, I think we should bring it back into our adult lives, don't you think? Yeah, just hang out. Maybe we'll have worship outside. Probably not. <laughs> well, during recess, we play kickball. And a buddy of mine said, hey, he began to brag, I can kick it to the top of the school roof, which was, by the way, very far and very high. Possible, maybe, for the almighty middle schoolers, but definitely not for us mere elementary mortals. So after saying that, what do you think the rest of us said after he started bragging? I could kick it up there. We all said, oh yeah, stupid head? Then prove it. Prove it. And sure enough, he kicked the snot out of that ball. And it sailed and sailed across the blacktop and onto the top of the school roof. I think even he looked a little surprised that he could do it. Whenever there's a claim in something, that people will typically shout back, oh yeah, we'll prove it then. Prove it. You want to get into a good school? We'll prove it then by studying you want to get married, We'll prove it by making yourself marriage material. You want to kick a habit, We'll prove it by disciplining yourself. We all say all sorts of things like that, right? We say things like talk is cheap, put your money where your mouth is. We say put up or shut up, actions speak louder than words. Or we say, hey, I'll believe it when I see it. I think it's safe to say that whether you are a believer or not, All people understand the concept of empty or cheap talk, right? You get that. Turn to your neighbor and say, I hate cheap talk. And I'll say, oh yeah, we'll prove it. And here's our first point for today. Our first point is that, you know what? Some faith is worthless. That sounds shocking. So here we are. We all believe salvation is by faith. And if we simply believe, then we have salvation, period, right? Well, God says, not exactly. God, he doesn't deny that salvation is by faith alone, nor does he deny that those who believe aren't saved. But here in this passage, God, he makes it very clear that there is a difference between true faith and counterfeit faith. Okay? Okay? This text is not telling us how to get saved. Instead, it's telling us what saved, well, being saved looks like. It's saying, is there evidence of you being saved? Is there evidence of your salvation? Here's an example of what counterfeit faith looks like, or in this case, worthless faith. James gives the illustration of a believer who does not love their brother or sister. Let me break it down for you. The needy person is called a brother or sister here in this text, which means that they are a fellow believer. Now, food and clothing are believed to be needed by that person, but here's the response from that so-called Christian of faith. There's sympathy. In fact, there's even an exchange of kind words. He says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but there's no help. No help means that that acknowledgement, that belief from that person, the sympathy from that person to the person in need has been rendered worthless. It is as worthless as warm words are to a person who's freezing outside. What James is saying here is that when faith fails to physically and tangibly help a fellow brother or sister in need, If it fails to do that, it is worthless. It's dead faith, and it will do nothing. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 25, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me, and in prison, and yet you did not visit me. I ask you, our English ministry congregants, do you love one another? Do you want to grow as a community of Christ centered people? If so, then prove it. And maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor David, no one is loving me. Let me ask you, are you loving them? Loving each other is not an I'll love you if you'll love me type of exchange. That's not how it goes. A faith that doesn't love one another is no faith at all. No matter how unlovable you are, or that person is, or how hurt you were, love is greater, love is more resilient, love for another is proof, hear me out, your love for one another is proof that Christ's love is in you. So there's another kind of worthless faith that James speaks of, and this is point two. It is a faith that does not love God. Do you know who knows God better than anyone in the world, better than any of the greatest theological minds, better than any apostle or disciple who has ever existed on earth? Do you know who has a more accurate view of God than anyone here? It's Satan. Think about it for a second. There is no one who believes in God more than he does. There is no one who feels the significance and the implications of faith more than he does. There is no one who trembles before the reality of who God is more than Satan and his demons. This should be eye-opening to us all here. Because faith is not knowing the right things it's not believing the truth with all your heart. It's not being so convinced that when you hear powerful sermons or go to amazing revivals or concerts, you shudder at the words and you get that tingling sensation. You see, none of that is true faith because that is also the faith of the devil. It is worthless. So what's missing then? Well, verse nineteen gives us a clue. It says, "You believe that God is one. You do well." Or even the demon's belief. That phrase, God is one. Do you know where it comes from? It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4, verses 4 and 5. This is what it says. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But here's something else. It continues on to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Period. Do you see the missing component here? Satan knows very well that God is one. Satan believes that God is the only God of all the universe. Satan trembles even before the very presence of the Holy One, as in he is also convicted and he is also emotionally moved when he sees and stands before God. But Satan does not love God. Faith is worthless if you have a faith that fails to love god who cares if you have a seminary degree in theology but you don't love god who cares if you have a phd in whatever but you don't love god who cares if you make over a hundred thousand dollars but you don't love god who cares if you have done over 20 missions trips and then so many outreaches but you don't love god the knowledge of god the confidence of his words of truth, the fear of God being in awe of his majesty, trembling before him in his presence, if none of that produces the love for him above all else, then our faith is dead. It's useless, and it cannot save anyone. So what does faith that is real look like then? And that's our third point. True faith has actions. It has actions. Turn to your neighbor and say that. True faith has action. You know, we think that faith is just something that we hold on to, like it's some sort of internal happening within our very being in our hearts and even in our words. But James, he makes it clear that not only does it start from the inside, not only does it start in your heart and in your spirit, but it also must be what produced externally. It must also be outside, meaning faith is in our hearts, that is true. Faith is in our words, that too is true, but faith must also be demonstrated, shown In our lives, that is true. Anything less than working faith, visible faith, tangible faith, is no faith at all, he says. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it was written around in the early 1600s, it says this. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification, meaning that is the only way to get saved. But he continues on by saying, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but it is ever, and here's the word, accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but here it goes, but works by love. That's why Apostle Paul here is saying, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, even if it is in Christ, if your faith isn't working through love, he says, then it's nothing. Because true faith acts. True faith has actions. And so we're given a couple illustrations here of what that action looks like. And it goes to our fourth point. Now, true faith is when you love God more than anything or anyone else in this world. Turn to your partner, neighbor, and say, I love God more than you. I'm sorry. And end it with, but I'm not sorry. (laughs) was it hard for you couples oh baby you know it's not true (laughs) so we read of abraham as an example abraham he did not earn his salvation god made promises to abraham abraham he believed in those promises and that's how he was made right before god God promises to make Abraham into a, into a great nation, his children. But Abraham, there was a problem. He was childless. He and Sarah were infertile. They were barren. There was absolutely no way he could have a child, much less create a nation. And yet Abraham believed, believed in God's promises, and God considered Abraham righteous. But that's not where the story ends. Because now James, he takes the story of Abraham about Forty years after God made those promises, and now He describes what Abraham's faith looks like now. So God had fulfilled His promise of giving Abraham and Sarah a son, a son named Isaac, who by this point was a young man. And I remember the whole promise of God and creating a, a huge and a wonderful, big, honoring nation along with the dreams and the hopes that Abraham and Sarah had for one another, all that hinged on their son, Isaac. Talk about pressure, right? Poor kid. But then God says, all of a sudden, go sacrifice Isaac to me. Now, it was here that Abraham was confronted with a choice. A choice between The salvation that God had given him and the God who gave it. A choice between the son whom God had had given and the God who gave him. It was a choice between all he understood about God and what God was doing in his life and the God who was doing it. What does true faith look like in this situation? True faith is choosing God first. It's loving God more than anything or anyone. It's choosing God before the things you believe he's given you. Will you choose God above all else? You may not think that you're given these propositions in these in your life, especially one as grave as the decision Abraham had to make. But let me say this, brothers and sisters. Every single day, we're confronted with a decision to make. Every single day, whether you know it or not. And you make a decision whether you know it or not. Every day, you are confronted with the decision of whether I will choose to love God or choose to love my dream. Whether you will choose to love God or choose to love my ambition. Whether you choose to love the agenda of God or choose to love your schedule and your purposes. Will you choose to love God or will you choose to love yourself? Will you choose to love the things of God and the things that make him happy or will you choose the things of this world and what the world wants from you? True faith is where you will at the end of the day, when it's all good and done, is one where you will choose to love God more than anything else. That is the type of faith we need. But true faith is also loving God's people no matter what. And that's our fifth point. Fifth and final. True faith is also loving God's people no matter what. There was a pagan woman named Rahab. She was a prostitute. She was a whore. She was someone who was despised and spat upon. Someone who was marginalized. Someone that no one would ever invite over for, for a cup of tea. She was disgusting used and abused, filthy. Now Rahab, she's heard of this God of Israel and she's also heard of this mighty works that he's been doing and how he brought his people out of Egypt using his supernatural and amazing powers. So Rahab believed that the God of Israel must, he must have to be, he has to be the true God. He has to be the true God. And so therefore he knew she knew that The enemies of God were no match. That they were all doomed, even her own people in her city. So Rahab was faced with a dilemma. The spies of Israel were hiding in her room or her home. Her own people and her governing authorities demand to know where they were. Her family, her allegiance, her life was on the line. She was caught between what she believes in her heart about God of Israel and the practical realities of her nationality of her allegiance, of her culture, of her town, of her people. What does she do? What is she to do? What does God want from Rahab? She could give up the spies, the authorities, and you know what happens? She'd probably be a hero. She'd be rewarded as a good citizen. She'd be popular, maybe even given a second chance at climbing the socioeconomic whatever from her tarnished reputation as a prostitute, or, or she can protect God's people. This would mean a loss in everything if she did that. Totally changing her allegiance, treason against her own people and nation. She would risk her life. Do you see what true faith here is, as demonstrated? Can she say honestly that she believes in God and that she believes in all the wonderful and powerful works, but then all of a sudden abandon his people? Does that make any sense? Is it acceptable to say that she believed in her heart that the Lord is Lord, but in her actions surrendered God's servants to die? Of course not. Her faith and actions are inseparable. It cannot be separated. True faith acts by loving God and loving God's people no matter what the cost. That's true faith. Loving God and loving one another no matter what the cost. Now, some of us here are doing well to love one another. You're serving and committing to each other to the best of your ability and your time and talents. Then there are those who are not doing anything. There are those who choose to receive that love, but you keep it for yourselves. They don't shower love and respect to anyone else except for very specific people in their lives, if that. Let me ask you, is it hard to love people? If it is, That means you don't have a full understanding of God's love for you. That even in the midst of your sinfulness, in your filthiness, in my filthiness, in my sinfulness, in your outright hatred and rebellion against God, he still sent his son to die for you. That does not make any sense. That's love. And that is the love that God demands us to demonstrate to one another. And so I end with this, brothers and sisters and friends. In Rahab's case, true faith is indeed radical. It's like changing lanes abruptly. It's like changing teams. God forbid me becoming a Dallas Cowboys fan. Unspeakable. Just verbalizing that made me die a little inside. But that's one aspect of true faith. It's a total radical shift in allegiance to God alone and his people. And perhaps right now you're struggling with that. Because trusting in Jesus by giving your life to the one who gave his life to you will be be an act of treason to the many already made allegiances that you've made in this world. It will be a treason. This might mean, guys, you will die socially. You will die in your family relationships. You might die from your career trajectory or ambitions, but you will truly live also for the very first time because you will be in the presence of God. Because in Christ, you will know that following Jesus is always and will always be the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life. Abraham's faith is more of an example of continuing faith, a faith that keeps going, a faith that's, that's consistently loving and consistently trusting God even years later. You see, true faith isn't just a Rahab radical conversion, but like Abraham, it's also a way of life. If you receive Christ as your Lord, he asks you this. Will you walk with me? Will you do life with him? Will you have a dialogue with him in prayer and by his word? Sometimes, and I say this here with all sincerity and love, I want you guys to awaken right now. Sometimes the clearest example of a counterfeit faith in our lives, of a counterfeit, shaky faith that's not set on solid ground is a life that is devoid of prayer, as a life that's devoid of the Word of God, and a life that's devoid of the community of believers, aka the church. And so I encourage you all, we are all called to love God more than anything else. If that's not the case for you, let me ask you, why not? What are you throwing your affection and love at? Is it at your family? Is it at your significant other? Is it your job? Is it your dreams? Is it your lust? Because whatever it is that you are just concentrating and throwing your love and affection, anything that's not God is an idol. Even your wife, even your husband, even your child is an idol. And one thing an idol cannot do is love you back, at least not the way God can. Are you loving one another as yourself? If you claim to love God but turn away a brother or sister who is in need, then what good is your faith? The true faith is putting yourself out there like Rahab did. Even if there's no guarantee of reciprocity or reward, you at least know that you are then loving them and helping them the way that God has loved and helped you, which is without condition. This entire sermon, my brothers and sisters, can be summed up with one verse that you all know so well, Luke 10, 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two, that great commandment, is what true faith looks like. And if there's such a thing as true faith, you have to understand, there's also such a thing as worthless faith. And right now, while well, Jesus has already done all the hard work for us. He asks you today, do you love me? If so, prove it. Prove it by loving me and loving one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I think that as people living in a very special privileged country like the United States here we often forget that the Christian faith actually is not as inviting in some ways all throughout scripture is constantly shown and worded as narrow and and difficult and radical that there is a weeding out. I think if we're honest, or honest with ourselves, we would realize that the faith that you and I profess to have, that faith in being a so-called Christian, that there really is absolutely no evidence of that in our lives, except for maybe our Sunday attendance. And for the occasional utterances of, yeah, I'm a Christian. James lays it out here in this chapter. He doesn't say you got to work to get saved, but no. He says alone that you are saved by Christ alone. That is true. But what is the evidence of that genuine, authentic conversion? You see, when you accept Christ Jesus, something happens inside you. It's called a new creation. You become regenerated. you know what that means? The deadness that once plagued you for all of your life and it eventually into your eternity was flipped upside down, was completely smashed and destroyed, and the Spirit of God had given you life. And so, because we are now alive in Christ Jesus, no longer the spirit of deadness dwelling within us, but really the spirit of life, that the spirit of life would then produce the things of God. That with that new nature in us would also produce a new affection, a new love, new desires. A new trajectory, a new ambition, new desires, new dreams, new everything. Because we no longer want the things of the world, but only the things of God. And what God wants is complete, unflinching, loyal devotion and love to Him, but also to His fellow people, His children. Brothers and sisters, I ask that you you would wake up today and if you are in any way discriminating, showing partiality, hating on, justifying your hatred, whatever you want to call it against a fellow brother or sister in Christ in particular, the Lord says, why? There was no reason for me to save you. There was nothing you could have done to earn my grace, and yet I still bestowed it upon you, simply because I am love. Brothers and sisters, I challenge you and I exhort you right now. Whoever it is that's up in your mind or your place in your heart, it is hard to love him. Love him. Embrace him. Be generous to them. If they're hungry, feed them they're tired, give them a place to rest. We as Christians cannot continue living on professing in the gospel of Jesus Christ with our words and in our hearts, but not exemplify and demonstrate that in reality. I refuse Shining Star Community Church English ministry to be a congregation filled with hypocrites. To be filled with people who are so willing to receive but so unwilling to give. For that is not what Christ died for. And that is not the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, friends, I want to give you guys a moment here to confess your heart. Confess and repent of anything and all things that has been leading you astray that has been distracting you that has been beco- that has become an idol in your life and if there is hatred or bitterness towards anyone here within our congregation i pray to the lord that you would grow in love and in faith you would go to that person whether it's today or tomorrow but the bible says do not let the sun set on your anger and reconcile let's pray